All right, James chapter number 2 tonight, and we're going to be covering 12 verses in James chapter number 2. 12 verses in James chapter number 2. Now, next week we'll be covering a lot more than that. But I do believe that these 12 verses will take the entirety of the, of, of the lesson hour tonight uh, to really go through and give a faithful exposition of. I'll tell you my perception of these, or my, my experience with these 12 verses, there's probably not a passage in the New Testament that is uh, more often misinterpreted and misused than this portion of Scripture. Those that would claim that a person has to do good works to get saved or do good works to keep saved or do good works to be better saved will often use James chapter number 2 to great damage. But once you see clearly, once you run the references and see what James is saying here, my experience was that once I rightly divided this word of truth, once the Spirit of God made it clear to me, it became crystal clear. And, you know, there's been times in my life of reading the Bible, I've read something and, and I thought, well, you know, I know it's God's Word, it's exactly how it ought to be, but I probably wouldn't have said it that way if I had been writing the Bible. Good thing I didn't write the Bible. Somebody say amen to that. But um, when you when you see this passage rightly divided, I believe you'll say... As I said, God said that exactly how it needed to be said. God made no mistake. God never makes any mistakes. And it is said exactly how it needs to be said. All right, James chapter number 2 tonight. We'll begin reading in verse number 14. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. James says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one dev and one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In this particular portion of the book of James, James takes up what is his central theme in the book of James. You could rightly say that these passages are the heartbeat of James' message. And James' message is essentially this. Paul made the statement that we need to be careful and warned against and we need to remove ourselves from dead works. You remember in Hebrews chapter number 6, he made the statement that God can purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And certainly there is such a thing as dead works. James warns us against the principle and the danger of dead faith. In the same way that Paul says your works can be dead if they have not faith, James says your faith can be dead if it have not works. And so what James is essentially presenting to us tonight, this is how my pastor always said it, and I I think this is a pretty pretty descriptive and and pretty appropriate way to say it. He said that that James was not preaching faith and works as a means of salvation. But he was preaching a faith that works as being the product of salvation. You think about where James was at, what he was living in. James, of course, had his propensity towards Old Testament law and towards Judaism. And there were, as is often the case, there's a ditch on either side of the road, right? And most of the time, the truth finds the middle. Not to say we need to be middle-of-the-road Christians, but there's usually an extreme on both ends. And the truth of the matter often 
is found in the middle. How many of you have ever heard the statement that there's three types of truth? Your your truth, my truth, and the truth. You ever heard that? You know, three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. Well, there were two ditches on either side of the road of truth. There was the side of the road that was uh, rabbinical Judaism. And rabbinical Judaism was works without faith. Cold, helpless, hopeless ceremonialism. Uh, The Bible tells us that the nation of Israel could not enter into the promised land because of unbelief. And that spirit and attitude of unbelief persisted all the way throughout their national history insomuch that when the very Son of God walked amongst them, it's not that they couldn't believe, they were not willing to believe that He was their Messiah. Now there is a ditch on the other side of the road. If rabbinical Judaism was works without faith then there's what we can rightly call antinomianism. And that's a big $10 word, but I'm going to explain what it means to you. Antinomianism is the notion that under the dispensation of grace that we live in, there's no call to personal holiness. This ideology, this heresy is pretty pervasive today, but it won't be called antinomianism. It'll be things like this. People say, well, only God can judge me. You ever heard that before? Only God can judge me. That should be something that strikes fear in our hearts, but instead it's used as a permissive uh, declaration that they're going to live the way that they want to. They'll say things like, it's my life and I'll live how I want to. Uh, Listen, if you're a Christian, it's not your life. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. The idea of antinomianism is I don't have to live right because of grace. And Paul's uh, condemnation of this attitude was very clear. He said, what shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound. God forbid. Uh, The fact of the matter is this, that a grace that does not drive us and motivate us to live righteously and to live like our Savior is no biblical, no scriptural grace at all. One commentator called it cheap grace. The grace of God teacheth us that denying ourselves, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. And so it was this mentality, I think, that James was trying to fight against. This notion of, well, you know, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, so I don't have to live in a righteous or a holy manner. If you don't think that was prevalent, uh, the, the epistle of 1 John, much of it is written to combat that very notion. So in the early church, just as it is today, there were folks that said, well, because I'm under grace, I can just live any old way that I want. Uh, One preacher said it this way, that grace was not given so that we could live out from under the law, but grace was given so that we could live above the law, so that our righteousness could exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So this is the central theme of the passage that is set before us, is that true biblical faith will be evidenced by works. Now, there's two words that I think are very important that we define carefully, and they're the words righteousness and justification. Now, righteousness means righteousness. It means right doing or a state of rightness. Justification, in just a purely definitional sense, means evidence, proof, or reason of something. But something you have to understand as you study the the inworking and outworking of salvation in the life of the believer is that every doctrine that relates to the salvation of the believer has both a positional and a practical understanding. Can I give you an example? Sanctification is probably the clearest illustration of this. Because the Bible says that as believers, we are sanctified. In fact, the Hebrews writer says we're sanctified forever. The term sanctify simply means to cleanse or to set apart. So when God views you and me, He doesn't view us in our own unrighteousness. He instead views us in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't view us in the filth of our iniquity, but in the pure, clean holiness of Jesus Christ. Positionally, that's how God views us. But now, listen, and somebody might want to amen me right here. I think most of us can acknowledge that, practically speaking, there's a lot of individuals that claim to be born again that aren't very sanctified. The way they live, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they act and treat each other does not have any seeming sanctification about it. So what is, what is it? Are they sanctified? Well, yes, they're sanctified. They're positionally sanctified in the eyes of God. Practically speaking, they're not very sanctified. Uh, Paul says that one day those two things are going to meet, and uh, our vile body will be made like unto his glorious body, and the, the positional will overtake the practical, and will be made in Christ's image. And that's what Paul was talking about when he said, If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. God saved me so that I'd be righteous. 
One day I'm going to be righteous when I'm given a new body. But I'm not waiting until then to try to be righteous. I'm trying to apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended. And he acknowledged, he said, not that uh, as though I'd already attained or were already perfect, but I follow after. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, every doctrine as it relates to the believer has both a positional and a practical understanding and application. James is talking about the practical application of these things. So, when he talks about righteousness, he's not talking about imputed righteousness, uh, meaning God reckoning us righteous, judicially speaking, but he's talking about practical righteousness, meaning the right doing of an individual. When he talks about justification, he's not talking about the, uh, the, the spiritual reality of the believer being placed within the person of Christ and being robed in his righteousness and being set at a justified or a right condition and position with God, but rather what he's talking about is justification in the sense of the outward evidence, reason, and proof of something. You ever heard someone make the statement, well, now I feel justified. In other words, they had said something was true, maybe they were treated as though it was not, but the truth had come out, proof had been given, and they were justified. Proof was given, and the reality was shown to be so. In other words, we can say it this way, that the righteousness that James is talking about is the exercise of biblical faith, and the justification that James is talking about is the evidence of biblical faith. He uses the terms in the practical sense rather than in the positional sense. And he means them to uh, reference the observable, measurable, perceivable goodness and proof of our faith in God. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, there are four basic thoughts that James sets forth. Once you notice, first off, the approach to faith that he describes in verse number 14. And he does this by presenting a scenario, so to speak. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith can, and have not works, can faith save him? So a false claim is first off quoted, and it is the cry of so many today. I have faith, I believe God, I trust God, I know God, and yet their works, their behavior, does not evidence that at all. James is advocating for a belief that behaves, for a a practical manifestation of our claimed and uh, our, our declared faith in God. And even today, there's a lot of folks that make this same claim. Hey, I know I don't always live right, but I love the Lord. No, if you love the Lord, you'd live right. That doesn't mean you'd be perfect. None of us are perfect. But we're not talking about perfect. We're talking about even, even trying to hit close to any kind of mark. There's a lot of people today that claim that they love the Lord. They say, well, I make a lot of mistakes, but I love the Lord. I know I, I ain't been to church in 20 years, but, you know, they'll say this. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. To that, James would say, true religion undefiled is this. In other words, real biblical faith will express itself in our behavior. And I would just simply ask you this question. How can you have confidence in a faith that cannot even motivate a person to hand out a tract or to go to church or to read their Bible or to pray? Now, I'm not saying I do all those things flawlessly or even really faithfully, some of them. But I am saying that in as much as the the faith is genuine and true, it will be expressed in an outward response. So the false claim is quoted. And uh, the notion of, you know, I believe God, I love God, I trust God, but I don't always live like it. Well, if you really do those things, then it will manifest itself. But then the false claim is questioned. I want to point out a word here. He says, can faith save him? Now, this is another word in your Bible that, you know, I found this to be true. The King James Bible is the best dictionary for the Bible. If you want to know what words in your Bible mean, and I've got, listen, I've got concordances, I've got Bible dictionaries. I'm not saying there's never a time to consult a source to understand something about maybe the context of a, of a word. But I've just found if we'll study our Bible, that oftentimes words that we struggle with, once we see them in use in other places in Scripture, they will become clear to us. Can I give you another place where the word save is used? Uh, Paul, writing in uh, the pastoral epistles, made this statement about a woman said that she would be saved in childbearing. Now, I don't know how your kids are, but I'll tell you this, man. Once you have kids, that don't make you more sanctified. 
That makes you less sanctified. Having kids don't bring the spirit under subjection. It somehow gives place for the flesh to rear up. So what does Paul mean when he says that? Well, what he means is this, that what Eve abdicated in the garden can be redeemed through the mother's influence over her children. In other words, that because Eve chose to sin, and by extension, of course, it was Adam's sin that spiraled man into depravity, that by that, she left a stain upon the world. But through rearing her children for the Lord and in righteousness, she can make a positive, spiritual, biblical, scriptural impact on the world. In other words, that she can redeem her meaning and purpose and be used of God in that way. So in that context, the word saved does not mean pardoned from your sin and, and imputed righteousness unto. But rather it means the same way that we say the term save in day-to-day language. We might say, hey, save me a piece of pizza over there. We're not asking you to get it to an altar and get it to fill out a card. We're saying, don't let anything happen to it. So when James says, can faith save him? The question must be asked, save from what? From what? That's always the question, right? Save from what? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? So when he uses the term save, he's not talking about a person having righteousness imputed unto them, but rather the redemption of that person's lifestyle and behavior from what would naturally be the result of their sin-fallen condition. In other words, my preacher used to say this, we can become by grace what we are not by nature. And in doing so, we are redeeming our life, same way the Bible talks about redeeming the time because we know the days are evil. We can rescue ourselves from a pointless, frivolous, fruitless, vain life. When it says, can faith save him, it's saying, or can uh, faith alone save him without works, what James is saying is faith is good, faith is vital, it's necessary, it's fundamental. But if there's no expression of that faith, then it does not impact anything. It's worthless. He goes on to say it's dead. It cannot change anything. It cannot impact anything. Notice the appraisal that he gives of faith without works. And I want to make a really important distinction in the verses that we've read. So the first thing he gives us is a case that we need to consider. We've already read it, but I'm going to go ahead and read it again. For brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. One of you say unto them, depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Now, I want you to notice what verse 17 says. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. The illustration, the case that James sets forth in verses 15 and 16, I want you to listen carefully, are an illustration, not an instruction. Now, this is very, very important for two reasons. One, because we can allow it to become the meat and substance of the gospel, the notion of humanitarian efforts. We can devolve the gospel into a social gospel. And that's the real risk. That's the real danger. I had a guy call me today, and he was talking about he had been helping someone out. And that person, had, you know, he was trying to help them get on their feet, trying to help them. They had fallen on hard times, and, and they, they weren't making any progress, and he didn't know what to do. And uh, someone had made the comment to him and said, well, you don't need to help that person anymore. And he said, well, I kind of feel like I need to. Doesn't the Bible command it? And he asked me about Matthew chapter 25. I I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. Isn't it always funny, man? Uh, Politicians can be as slimy as all get out. But when it comes time to raise money, all of a sudden they become preachers quoting Matthew 25. Isn't that interesting? I'm talking about uh, preachers that don't know nothing. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I think when you get to Congress, they don't make you they don't make you memorize the Constitution, but they do make you memorize Matthew 25. Just so you can get up in front of evangelicals and say, "Well, we need more money, folks. We got a lot of hungry and naked and and <laughs> imprisoned people we got to take care of." And I explained to that individual that passage is not talking about the individual. 
uh, Christ is talking about is the judgment of the sheep nations, the goat nations. He's not talking about the treatment of the individual. He's talking about the nations and their treatment of Israel. Because, of course, the book of Matthew is uh, written to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. Everything in it has a distinct application to the nation of Israel. But what that man was struggling with was, do I have a scriptural mandate to temporally, financially help someone that is down and out? I told him, I said, well, look, I think it's a good policy. I think certainly if the Spirit of God tells you to, then to not do it would be disobedience. But, you know, we're called as much as uh, is possible to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. But Matthew 25 is not talking about passing out soup or sandwiches, nor is James chapter 2 talking about giving people clothes or food. It is an illustration. And what James is saying here, first I want you to notice that the need is discerned. The person understands that there is a need. They are convicted and convinced that this person is in need of something. But what do they do? It's not that they don't believe there's a need there, but it stops with believing. It stops at their belief and never proceeds to their behavior. We see the need dismissed. Uh, There's a foolish assertion made. Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Well, you want to talk about making your wife mad. Sometime you're riding home, and she's hungry. No, not hungry, hangry. You know what I'm talking about. And she says, man, when are we going to stop and get something to eat? If you're real brave. I'm talking about real brave. Look over at her and say, honey, depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. We can immediately see how that could lead to some conflict, couldn't we? And the foolish assumption is this. He, he asks the question, he says, what does it profit? In other words, we would instinctively understand that intellectual assent to a need is not the same as actively remedying that need. You could say all day long, and by the way, those same politicians, that's what they do. Am I right? They say all day long, hey, be, be filled, be warm, we're going to fix the problem, we're going to write this legislation. But none of it ever changes anything. James is not giving us an instruction about how to help people that are hungry or people that are cold. Now listen, if there's somebody and God puts them in your path and lays it on your heart, by all means do it. I'm not speaking against it. But it's abusing Scripture to try to reduce what James is teaching here to that surface application. That's not what he's saying. And it's revealed to us in those first two words of verse 17. Even so. In other words, imagine this scenario. That is what it is like, he says, if faith does not have works. And he makes the first charge concerning it in this way. He says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. You know, faith, if it's true faith, is evidentiary in nature. In fact, the, the cornerstone definition of faith in your, in your Bible is Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, true faith will be substantive and evidentiary. Well, what does that mean? How can that be? It's obvious that Paul there is not talking about it in, a, in an existential way because he, he, he describes there's things not seen. But he says faith is not like those things that aren't seen. Faith is the evidence of those things that aren't seen. So how can faith be seen except it be that faith moves us to behave in a certain way? This is the thrust of James's argument here. And he makes an application. I want you to look what he says. Verse number 18. I like this. I moved a little fast. He gives in verse 17, he gives a pontifical conclusion. In other words, faith is worthless if it doesn't have works. But then he gives a pragmatical conclusion. He says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You know what we could really sum that up by saying? That faith without works, it just doesn't mean a whole lot. If there's one phrase I could give to sum up society and culture today, you know what it would be? Talk is cheap. We live in a day of information overload. We are the most well-informed people throughout human history. It's not for lack of information. It's not for lack of knowledge in the sense of apprehending facts and, and, and statistics and, and history and science. We've got all those things. 
But the problem is we have somehow been paralyzed in such a way that none of that information gets any further than our head. It goes here and it never makes it to here and it sure don't never make it out to here. The fact of the matter is, you can say you have faith, but if you don't have works, your faith don't mean anything. But the person that has faith, if it be accompanied by works, his faith is meaningful because it reaches out and touches the world around him. Verse number 19, this is startling. And and I think there's an understanding of this. It was lost on me for a lot of years. I want you to notice it. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe, notice these last two words, and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now let me tell you what I believe I misunderstood about that verse and, and what I believe is the reality of that verse. I thought for a lot of years that what James was saying was this, that if you have faith without works, then your faith is no better than the devil's. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is even more alarming. I think what he's saying is this. If you have faith without works, your faith is not not just no better than the devil's. It's in fact even worse. Those last two words, and tremble. The devil's faith, and when he uses the term devil's little d, it's not speaking of the devil, meaning our adversary Satan, although I think the same statement could be made about him. But it's talking about devils, meaning all of the plethora of fallen angels that do his bidding. And he's saying those devils, when they believe, it produces something. Their faith is not correct. Their faith is not saving. Their faith is not sufficient. But at least it's better than yours, O vain man. Because their faith at least moves them. You know, the fact is, when we claim to have faith, but it does not bear itself out in our behavior. We don't even have as much faith as the devils did that whenever Jesus would enter into their presence, they would fall at his feet and confess him as the son of God, would tremble, would beg for mercy, would beg to be allowed to go into the swine. Uh, We don't even have the same kind of faith. Our faith is of lesser caliber than the devils that would take a devil-possessed man and rend him in two and try to kill him and leave him for dead. At least their faith made them do something. And if our faith never moves beyond simple, mere intellectual assent to biblical doctrines, if it never moves us to behave, if it never moves us to live and serve, then our faith, it's not not just on the same level as theirs. It is in some ways lesser. It's sadder. It's emptier. It's in some ways, it, it may not be as dangerous as theirs, but it's more dead than theirs. You know, the sad reality is this. Most of the cults, have more commitment than those of us that hold the truth. When was the last time you hopped on a bicycle and went out passing out tracks? When was the last time that you said, I'll wear that outfit because that's what... <laughs> I want to say this right. When was the last time that you said, if I need to dress that way to leave an impression on the world around me, then that's what I'll do. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. Every one of them, you see them on their bikes, with their helmet, with their, with their white shirt, their black tie, their dark pants. Now listen, I'm not saying the substance of Christian living is defined by that. And I'm sure not saying that that merits any favor with God or that that is somehow an expression of devotion to the Lord. But I am saying that the cults oftentimes even express a greater commitment than those of us that hold the truth. That's sad. We ought to do something to remedy that. So, Paul warns against dead works. James warns against dead faith. He presents faith displayed. He says the devils believe and tremble, but then he disputes the faith of the person that faith cannot move them. He says, wilt thou know a vain man? That means empty. Empty. And you know, when we consider faith that cannot move us, we cannot describe it as anything other than dead and empty. He says, faith without works is dead. Now, I want you to notice the appeal that he gives, and we might have to take a few moments on this. It'll probably take the majority of the rest of our time. He gives first a proof of his contention. He's going to give two biblical examples of the principle that he is preaching. And it is in these two examples, primarily the first example, that a lot of bad doctrine is found. You know, if you don't, when God gives you a reference in the Bible, you ought to at least show God enough reverence 
to go look at that reference. Enough, did I say that right? Enough reverence to go look at the reference. In other words, if, if God points to something in Scripture, we ought to have enough respect for God and His Word that we at least go read what He mentioned. So He gives two examples. The first is of Abraham the Hebrew. The second is of Rahab the harlot. And a lot of people have looked at this and said, well, preacher, it's plain as day right in Scripture. It says that Abraham was justified by his works. It says that by works his faith was made perfect. Doesn't that mean that works save us? No. 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 I want you to notice what he says here. There are five statements made about Abraham. The first thing he points to is a great triumph in Abraham's life. Now, we don't always do this, but tonight we are. I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter number 22. We're going to read about this. Verse 21 says this of our text in James, while you find your place there. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by his works? when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Now, what is God talking about? What passage is he referencing? Genesis chapter number 22. And I want you to look with me in that passage. We'll begin reading at verse number 1. We'll just read down to verse 12. It's not very far. The Bible says in verse number 1, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. It's very important. He says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went forth, both of, they went both of them together. Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. They came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know, that's important, now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. All right, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 15, and I want you to consider something with me. Now, you know this scene on Mount Moriah that we've just read about, and I've always found it interesting. Preachers will preach on this passage, and they will preach on it as a passage of great sacrifice. They'll say, you need to lay your Isaac on the altar. You need to be willing to give God anything because it all belongs to him. And I suppose there's a a good and, and maybe even a valid application to be made there. But I don't think that this is a scene of great sacrifice. Now remember, James has said, when referencing that, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, faith wrought with his works, not works alone, faith wrought with his works, and by works... Was faith made perfect? Can I remind you very quickly that the word perfect in your Bible, more often than not, does not refer to being morally uh, unreproachable. doesn't refer to being sinless most of the time in your Bible. Instead, the word perfect most of the time means mature, complete, or comprehensive. James then goes on to say this, And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, there are three references here that point back to places in Scripture. The first is in verse 21 that points to Genesis chapter number 22. The second is in Genesis chapter number 15 when it says that he believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And the last is actually, it's, it's found in two places. It's found in Second uh, Chronicles 20 and verse 7, also in Isaiah 41 and verse number 8. In both those places, Abraham is called the friend of God. So you're there, I trust, in Genesis chapter number 15. Let's read about what transpired then. 
Now, I, let me just point out that the events that take place in Genesis 15 are 15 years prior to the birth of Isaac. They are, best as we can tell, 48 years prior to the scene that we read about in Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah. I know you've always seen the little pictures of, of, of Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac's just a little lad, eight or nine years old. That's not how it was. Abraham was not a little lad. He also wasn't white and, and brown-haired and blue-eyed. Amen. But, you know, what can you do? That's how they paint them. He was not a little boy. Isaac, if we if we look at the timeline, was a grown man, probably, as the figures that we just mentioned bear out, about 35 years old. So between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, there are 48 years that transpire. James says that on Mount Moriah, Abraham was justified by his works as they were wrought with his faith. And he says the scripture that was fulfilled was this, that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and that he was called the friend of God. Look in Genesis 15. We're going to read just the first six verses. The Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Inasmuch as we can use this terminology... This was the moment of Abraham's salvation. He believed God, and righteousness, positional righteousness, was imputed, meaning it was laid to his account. And yet it was 48 years before this promise was ever put to the test in a meaningful way. Fifteen years later, God gives him Isaac. And for 35 years, he's joyed with the ability to raise Isaac, to love Isaac, to watch Isaac grow, uh, to watch Isaac become the young man that he was. And then all of a sudden, the command comes from God one day, Abraham, I want you to take your son up to Mount Moriah. I want you to give him as a sacrifice. What is Abraham to do with that command? It seems as though he has two conflicting commands from God. He's been told that Isaac is going to be the, the promised seed. At that time, Isaac was not married. Jacob and Esau were not born. So how could God's word be true if Isaac was going to die on that mountain? Remember when I pointed out that Abraham made the statement, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I don't think Abraham was lying when he said that. I think Abraham's faith was now put to the test. He had faith 48 years earlier. He believed God. Righteousness was imputed unto him. But now that faith is being tested. And how will he respond? I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the last place I'll have you turn tonight before we go back to our text. Hebrews chapter number 11. And I want you to look down with me at verse number 17. This, of course, is the hall of faith, hall of fame of faith, whatever you want to call it. This great pivotal chapter on faith. And the Bible says in verse 17, by faith, by faith, not by works, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises, what promises? The promise that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Isaac had no children at that time. He that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now why did Abraham do that? Or with what frame of mind did he do that? Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Mount Moriah was not a scene of supreme sacrifice. Mount Moriah was a scene of supreme surrender. Abraham did not understand what God was doing. He did not understand how this was going to transpire. He did not understand how God was going to make all this happen. But here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that Abraham looked at that mountain and he said to himself, 
Almost 50 years ago, God made a promise to me. And I believe that regardless of what transpires on that mountain, I will come back down with my son. Because God's word is true. He went up there thinking, Lord, if you want me to go up and kill him, I'll kill him. But if I kill him, you're just going to have to raise him from the dead. Because you made a promise to me. In other words, Abraham's giving of Isaac was a manifestation of his faith. And when James uses the term justified, he's not saying Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him, because James well knew that when Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him was almost 50 years earlier. wasn't lost on James what the Holy Ghost was saying here. So what scripture was fulfilled? This is the scripture that was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's the giving of the promise and the response of faith. The evidence of that faith is found in the next phrase. And he was called the friend of God. How do you become God's friend? I saw they've got some silly show coming on about God friended me. <laughs> you know, the world can't help but be carnal. They just Lost people can't help but be lost. We might as well not get mad about it. We, ought, we, we just ought to have compassion, pray for them, try to win them to Christ. Uh, our rage ain't going to change them, but the gospel can. How does a man become the friend of God? Well, Christ said it in no uncertain terms. He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I've often heard people make application of that passage to Christ, but I don't think that's fair. Because Christ didn't lay down his life for his friends. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The book of Romans says clearly that if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the blood of his son. See, greater love hath no man than this. God's love is greater than man's love. But the greatest attainment of love that man can have is to lay down his life for his friends. God showed his friendship towards us in giving Christ to die for us when we were enemies. Once he's done that, and once we have in faith received that, then the greatest way that we can express our love towards him is to give our life for him. And Christ said as much. He said, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So in other words, Abraham became the friend of God by giving his life. He said, well, preacher, it wasn't him up on that altar. No, but it was the promises of God. It was the hope of his old age. It was everything that mattered to him. He said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I will trust that your word cannot be broken. The scene on Mount Moriah was not of works somehow superseding faith, but rather a faith giving birth to works and works being the manifestation of the faith that Abraham placed in God almost 50 years earlier. And that's why the scripture was fulfilled. And that's what James is saying. And that's the reason that James made the, makes a statement by works was faith made perfect, made complete, made comprehensive, made mature. Abraham had faith, but that faith had not been put to the test in a meaningful way. Now on Mount Moriah, his faith is put to the test and faith as it should be, faith that manifests itself in right living, right behavior, surrender to God, living for Him, giving our life for Him, that type of faith was realized on that mountaintop. It was made perfect. His faith was made what God had always intended it to be. A faith that is birthed on the inside, but that bears on the outside. He mentions Abraham, the Hebrew. Second, he gives us an example of Rahab, the harlot. He says, likewise also. So in other words, what we saw in Abraham's example, we're also going to see in Rahab's example. Likewise also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn. There's too much scripture for us to really read in, in, in the short time that we have together. But you can find this passage in Judges chapter number 2. The children of Israel are getting ready to destroy the city of Jericho, and God commands uh, spies to go into the land and to spy out the land before they go in there. By the way, when God sends us in to spy out the land, it's not because he needs to know what's in there. It's because we need to see what's in there. God, it didn't change God's plan one iota, what they saw in there. God just wanted them to see how great of a miracle he was about to perform. So two spies are sent into the land of Jericho. They are tasked with searching out the land. 
There's a problem, though. You show up inside of a walled city, small town, at least where everybody seems to know each other, you've got to have a cover story. So when they get there, they go to the house of a harlot. I'm not recommending it to you, neither is God, but that's what they did. They went there because they knew that men could come and go without being viewed as suspicious. So they arrive there, and as they stand at the door, Rahab recognizes them. She knows immediately who they are. They are warriors, soldiers, spies sent out from this marauding, well, maybe not marauding, this wandering group of Israelites that they had heard so much about. Now, they they knew who these Israelites were. They had heard for years about this band of people that were traveling across the wilderness of the desert, led by a man with a face that glowed with a heavenly countenance, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud in front of them, water coming forth from rocks, uh, vast armies being vanquished before them. In fact, who had been the world empire had been laid low when God poured the Red Sea back in upon them. They knew who these people were. Rahab knows immediately who they are, and she knows immediately why they're there. They're there to spy out the land. And she has to make a choice. She could have very easily said, I'm sorry, fellas, I'm not open for business. Please go down to the next road. But instead, she received them into her house. This was an act of faith. I wrote it down this way. Consider with me first off the treason that she committed. Had it been found out that she had given refuge to these men, they would have took her out and stoned her, hung her, burned her to death, whatever. Her life would have been forfeit. And so it was an act of faith that she even allowed these men in her house. It it, it was an evidence of her faith. She trusted in their victory. She said to herself as she stood at her door, God is going to overthrow this city, and I want to be on the right side of history. I'll let them in because I believe God is going to bring about a great victory. So her allowing them into her house, her receiving the messengers, it was not a work that was stripped of faith, but it was a work that was born of faith. And she says as much later on when they're in the house. She says, we've heard. We've heard what you've done. We've heard what your God has done. And she says later, hey, listen, just spare me. Whenever God overthrows this city, spare me, spare my family, because I know God's going to get the victory. She committed great treason by allowing them in her house. She sealed her fate. She cast her die. And she, she threw her name in with the children of Israel. Consider the treason that she committed. But then I want you to consider the trust that she committed to them. So they come into the house. You know the story, how she hides them on the rooftop. And the men, the soldiers come looking for them. And she lies to them. Again, I'm not recommending it. God's not either, but that's what happened. She says, those men, they came, but they left. And, and they took off or out towards the, the wilderness. They're gone from here. So the soldiers leave. They go outside the city gates. They begin to search trying to find these men. And now she has a choice. What's she going to do? It's really not too late for her in some ways. She could call for a a policeman, a constable, a soldier, however you want to describe them. She could say, these men broke in on me. But instead, she has a conversation with them. She says, I know God's going to give you victory. And then she lets them go. Now, they could have done anything. They could have ran back home and kept secret the conversation that they had had. They could have gone back and they could have said, hey, I know someone that we can fall upon first. We've already seen her house. We've already seen the way into the city. She lives upon a wall. We can get up into her house. We can kill her and go on through the city. But instead, she trusted these men. She trusted that they would do what they had said. I put it this way. She trusted in their virtue. She trusted that they were going to do what they had promised. It was an act of faith to receive them. It was an act of faith to release them. But both of those were acts. They were works. They were expressions and evidence of her faith. So her, just like Abraham, her faith was not merely an intellectual assent to ideals, but rather a a practical, expressive manifestation of her faith. What's the point of all this? Look at verse 26. James says, For as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without works is dead also. In other words, he makes two statements. The first is about a dead body. That's where he finally ends his illustration here. Faith without works is like a dead body. One commentator said it this way. You can cleanse it, you can clothe it, you can compose it in a casket, but it won't respond to you. You can curse it, you can command it, you can caress it, but it won't respond to you. 
All a dead body's going to do is just lay there. Nothing on this side of eternity, nothing on this side of, of, of divinity can make it live again. It is literally helpless, motionless, actionless. And that's how he says faith is when it doesn't have works. It's dead. It's lifeless. It's meaningless. We can hearken back to what he said, oh, vain man, empty, meaningless, fruitless. That's what he said it's like when we reduce our faith to merely intellectual assent. When our faith can't move us to respond to God, when our faith can't move us to reach out to others with the gospel, when our faith can't move us to readily attend God's house, to read our Bible, to render prayer unto the Lord, it's just meaningless, it's dead, it's worthless. And he speaks about a dead belief. He says, even so, so faith without works is dead also. There's a lot of people today whose faith never moves past the mere declaration of it. There's no manifestation of it whatsoever. Here's what I want to challenge to you. And we've got just a moment, so I'm going to take the liberty to challenge you in something. I want to challenge you to do a checkup on yourself. And ask yourself how faithfully you're living out what you claim to believe. Look at your statement of faith. And ask yourself, do I really believe those things? I'm not questioning whether you know them. You remember, we talked about what the angel said on Mount Moriah. By this I know that thou fearest God. In other words, Abraham already knew that he feared God. The angel says, now I know that you fear God. It wasn't because the angel could not be told by God. I don't have any reason to believe angels are omniscient. In fact, I would, I'd say they're not. And there's no reason God couldn't have merely looked at this angel and said, hey, Abraham's faith is genuine, it's true, it's valid. God didn't need proof that Abraham's faith was real and valid. God already knew. So what is the lesson that God is teaching us? We may know our faith is genuine in some respect. We may know we genuinely accept those ideals and truths and doctrines. God may know it, but the world won't know it. It'll stay buried within us, never to touch the world around us, never to meaningfully impact and influence anyone. Look at your statement of faith. There's probably not a person in here that wouldn't say, I believe Jesus is coming soon. Are you living like it? Does your church attendance suggest that you believe that? Does your Bible reading, does your witnessing suggest that? What about just simply your behavior today, your holiness, your consecration? Does that suggest that you believe that? I believe this is the Word of God. I believe my King James Bible is perfect and inerrant. I believe it's inspired because the inspiration of God was perfectly plenary, preserved, without error, no mixture of of error with it. It's it's 100% pure truth. Does the way I read it, does that suggest that I believe it's the Word of God? Imagine, I said this the other day, I was talking about reading the Bible all the way through, and imagine if God literally wrote you a note, put your name on it, and set it on your nightstand. How long do you think it'd be before you tore that thing open to read it? And yet, there might be portions of the Bible that your eyes have never laid on. There might be portions of the Bible that you have never read. We say we believe in prayer. I think the greatest evidence of a belief in prayer is a commitment to prayer. Hey, listen, and I'm like Paul, not as though I were already perfect or had already attained. I follow after. The question is, are you following after? Just look at your statement of faith. And ask yourself, is my faith living or is it dead? Because if it's dead, if it's without works, it's of no use, of no value to yourself or to anyone else.